It's Thursday, November 10th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, is algae the secret to feeding our growing world? Plus, new evidence for a sixth mass extinction that occurred even earlier than the Big Five. And some prescient thoughts on democracy from 50 years ago, courtesy of the creator of Charlie Brown. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. If you thought turkey bacon or veggie bacon were abominations, just wait for algae bacon. You've probably heard about how we should and maybe will start eating more insects as time goes on due to their lesser impact on the environment compared to other protein sources. But according to some experts, we should also be eating more algae. Luckily, algae is a pretty big category, which means the possibilities are quite expansive. Algae includes thousands of different marine species, maybe even a million of them, according to National Geographic. From big macro algae, like the seaweed that wraps around your legs at the beach, to microscopic organisms like phytoplankton. The global population of humans is set to hit 8 billion next week. And by 2050, the United Nations expects it'll be nearly 10 billion. So, National Geographic argues, if we were to feed all 10 billion people, global food production would need to grow by 50%, an increase that would require 1.4 billion acres of land. But the cultivation of that much land wouldn't necessarily be good for the environment because of all the disruption to natural ecosystems it would cause, and how certain ecosystems like forests sequester way more carbon pollution than big farms. So facing the reality of how much land we may need to feed the growing world is pretty stark. But what if, where we're going, we don't need land? Seaweed does not need land. It doesn't even need fresh water. It's abundant in oceans and just needs some light for photosynthesis. And people are taking notice. According to National Geographic, it's the fastest growing sector in agriculture. And by 2027, the global seaweed market could be up to $95 billion. That's compared to $40 billion in 2020, which is frankly already a lot more than I would have expected. Basically, a lot of people have cottoned on to its advantages. Algae doesn't need support structures like other plants. It's just suspended in the water even as it grows, meaning it grows quite quickly. And according to National Geographic, some species of kelp can grow two to three feet per day. So it grows fast, and there's a ton of it, and it doesn't require a lot of maintenance like land-based plants. But is it good? Like, does it taste good? And is it good for us? Could we really turn algae into a major food source? Apparently so. Quoting National Geographic, Studies have shown seaweed has major potential as a health food. It's full of protein, fiber, rich with micronutrients like iron, and full of vitamins. And while scientists are just beginning to study the potential health benefits of microalgae, they're finding many species are high in protein and amino acids. Both sustainable and nutritious, seaweed was described as revolutionary at a recent United Nations Ocean Conference. And in an analysis published last month, University of Washington ocean scientist Charles Green and his co-authors hypothesized that algae farms could produce all the protein the world will need in 2050, end quote. Now, Green adds the caveat that he doesn't expect the whole world to get all of their protein from algae, but that it could be a significant alternative. 
And in the U.S. alone, we have 4.3 million square miles of national waters that could be used for algae farming. Now, of course, algae farming is nothing new. Seaweed has been an important part of cuisines around the world for centuries, especially in Japan, in Hawaii, in China, even in Ireland. But except for eating those specific cuisines and the more recent trend of things like seaweed chips, it hasn't really taken off in America. In fact, the first time America started taking any interest in algae wasn't as a food source, but as a potential fuel source. Green explained that during gas shortages in the 70s, scientists investigated using algae instead of corn. For good reason, an acre of algae can produce 10 to 100 times more fuel than an acre of corn. But Green says it never took off because the type of algae being grown was expensive, more expensive than petroleum. But who knows, maybe it'll make a comeback if we don't go fully electric. For now, though, the focus for algae is on food. Green thinks that it should be being used more often in meat alternatives. You know, companies like Impossible and Beyond, who use soy and pea proteins respectively. They could switch to algae, which Green says is more nutritious and would have a better texture. And as someone who can't have soy, I would be thrilled to see yet another protein alternative enter the game. And it is already being used in some meat alternatives, but usually it's more for coloring than protein. For example, red algae is apparently very useful in faking the color of beef. And algae is also used in fake seafood to give it that umami flavor, which makes a ton of sense when you think about it. And then there's the algae bacon. That comes from San Francisco-based Umaro Foods, among others. And this whole algae thing really sounds like a win-win-win. So what's preventing it from taking off just yet? Like so many other things, figuring out how to do it at scale is one of the issues. If you grow so much that it becomes like a dense mass, then some of it isn't getting that crucial light anymore, and it stops growing. And current human-made solutions to that problem cost money, which makes the cost-effectiveness of algae less of a solid argument. But that, to me, sounds like a pretty minor roadblock, something a little creativity could solve over time. And apparently in places like Maine, which produces the most seaweed of any U.S. state, they've already had decent success with vertical growth for macro algae. Seaweed could be the future. Personally, I love a bit of seaweed in a poke bowl, and if some people are kind of grossed out by the color or texture or anything, the good news is that it sounds like a lot of the applications that will really be driving the market are in those protein alternatives, so situations in which you wouldn't even see the algae, even though you know it's there. I mean, you don't see the soy protein in an impossible patty, do you? And overall, I think algae is going to be a much easier sell than insects. The main extinction event that gets the most hype is the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction event, aka the one that killed the dinosaurs. But that's actually just one of five mass extinctions in Earth's history. Called the Big Five, they include the Ordovician Silurian, about 440 million years ago, the Late Devonian, about 370 million years ago, the Permian-Triassic, about 205 million years ago, the Triassic-Jurassic, about 200 million years ago, and then finally the Cretaceous-Paleogene about 65 million years ago. 
But a new study published this week in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences gives credence to another mass extinction event that happened even earlier, near the end of the Ediacaran period about 550 million years ago. During that time, about 80% of the animals would have gone extinct, in particular those who relied on significant amounts of oxygen, which lead author Scott Evans says indicates the extinction event, like all mass extinctions in the geologic record, was environmentally controlled. Co-author Xu Hai Zhao says, quote, Environmental changes, such as global warming and deoxygenation events, can lead to massive extinction of animals and profound disruption and reorganization of the ecosystem. This has been demonstrated repeatedly in the study of Earth history, including this work on the first extinction documented in the fossil record. This study thus informs us about the long-term impact of current environmental changes on the biosphere. The short answer to how this happened is we don't really know. It could be any number and combination of volcanic eruptions, tectonic plate motion, an asteroid impact, etc. But what we see is that the animals that go extinct seem to be responding to decreased global oxygen availability. End quote. But this extinction, Evans says, could have paved the way for the evolution of animals as we know them today. And that's in part because the animals that went extinct during this event were nothing like we would think of animals today. As Science Alert explains, animal life back then was mostly soft and squishy or occasionally shelled animals in the oceans, often kinds like sponges who just sort of stay in place like a plant. Because many of them were so soft, we don't have an enormous fossil record of them. Softer body parts don't fossilize as well. And quoting Science Alert, Researchers have typically suspected a relative absence of soft-bodied animals in the Ediacaran's later stages are simply the result of a failure to be preserved. But the global fossil record indicates otherwise. The team found that there was an overall increase in biodiversity between the earlier and middle stages of the Ediacaran, known as the Avalon, and White Sea stages. We find significant differences in the feeding mode, life habit, ecological tier, and maximum body size between the Avalon and White Sea assemblages, the team writes in their paper. Between these two time periods, more, smaller, mobile animals appeared that fed on the microbial mats that dominated the seafloors. Previously, many of the animals were stuck-in-place filter feeders. Feeding modes did not change in this way between the White Sea and the last stage, known as the Nama. Rather, a staggering 80% of species seemed to vanish between those two stages of the Ediacaran. End quote. And while prior research chalked the change up to mobile animals that burrowed or left trace fossils, which altered the environment, this new study suggests that all types of feeding modes and life habits experienced similar losses. One thing to look for is if more newly evolved species took over, there would have been more temporal overlap between the old species and the new, but there apparently wasn't. The decline in diversity overall was comparable to the percentage lost during the Big Five mass extinctions, the team says. Now, these researchers aren't the first to suggest a mass extinction occurred this early on, but they are among the first to connect some of those crucial dots, which Science Daily points out they were only able to do so because when the pandemic limited their access to field research, they instead created a database based on existing published records, and that's when they were able to notice some of these patterns. So, pretty cool outcome from the lockdown, all things considered. You know what they say, when life gives you lemons, make the evidence for the Earth's earliest mass extinction. I want to end today with something the good folks at Upworthy dug up. 
It's a letter from cartoonist Charles Schultz written to a then 10-year-old fan 52 years ago yesterday. According to KQED, who first reported on this story three years ago, Joel Lipton was given an assignment as a fifth grader in California to write a letter to someone that he admired, asking them the question, what makes a good citizen? Lipton chose Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts comic strip, more popularly known as the Charlie Brown or Snoopy comics. Lipton had forgotten about the letter, which he says probably went over his head at the time, but found it again when he and his wife were cleaning out their closet three years ago. The letter is a brief but measured note on the nature of democracy that still rings poignantly true today. When approached by KQED three years ago, Schultz's widow Jean told them that Schultz answered a lot of fan mail, but that this response was rare. Ordinary responses were more routine and cordial. This one, she says, could have been written today. So here's what Charles Schultz wrote when a fifth grader in 1970 asked him what makes a good citizen. Quote, Dear Joel, I think it is more difficult these days to define what makes a good citizen than it has ever been before. Certainly, all any of us can do is follow our own conscience and retain faith in our democracy. Sometimes it is the very people who cry out the loudest in favor of getting back to what they call American virtues who lack this faith in our country. I believe that our greatest strength lies always in the protection of our smallest minorities. Sincerely yours, Charles M. Schultz. End quote. Now, who's to say if he'd feel exactly the same these days, but Upworthy did point out that Schultz put his words into action back in the day. Quoting Upworthy, The Peanuts comic made some social ripples when Franklin, the comic's first black character, was introduced in 1968. According to NPR, Schultz had been hesitant about creating a black character as he worried that it might seem condescending. But with some input from black Americans on how to write the character, he successfully brought Franklin into the Peanuts world. Portraying interracial friendship as normal led to protests from Southern segregationists, but Schultz kept writing him into the comic strip. End quote. Honestly, that's more than some people would do today. Taking the risk, consulting with people who are actually a part of the population you're portraying, and then sticking to it even when you face backlash. Pretty solid values, in my opinion. I'm never sure if it's comforting or worrying to hear that we've been worried about the nature of democracy in one way or another for generations, but it is comforting to know that we've always had people for whom that question is an important one and who think thoughtfully and conscientiously about it. Well, that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.